This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. We've got a special approach here today for the AFC North podcast. We're going to do this as a podcast by committee. It's like how Bill Belichick approaches the backfield. Shio Kapati is going to be joining us a little bit later to talk about the Bengals and the Browns. But before we get to Shield, joining me today is ESPN analyst and new Monday Night Football color commentator, Lewis Riddick. Lewis, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on here. I mean, it's, uh, wow, one week away. One week away from Monday Night Football. It's pretty cool, man. I'm very excited about hearing you on Monday Night Football. When I was building our initial list of guests for these previews, my thought with everybody was, who do I want to talk about football with? And you were definitely on that short list. So I'm extremely glad that we can make this happen. I know you don't have a ton of time, so we're going to get right into this. And we're going to start our AFC North preview with the Baltimore Ravens. I don't know where else we could start. Obviously, it was a magical year last season. It went about as well on offense as it possibly could. I mean, for most of the year, they were kind of the darlings of the league. I mean, I I always like when a team has a cohesive vision, abides by that vision, and things unfold in the way they'd plan. And I think that's exactly what you can say about the Ravens last year. Yeah, no question. Look, I think, look, the quicker that people understand who they are and stay true to who they are and do not try to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, and try to be something that they're not, then the – Likely, likelier they are to have success more rapidly, and they're able to then expand and do other things off of that. As long as their base is solid and their core is solid, and they understand, okay, this is who fundamentally, when the rubber meets the road or the you know what hits the fan, you know we we know who we are, we know what we can go back to, and then kind of recalibrate if things ever start to go bad. And John Harbaugh has done a great job of making no bones about the fact that this is a football team that's going to predicate themselves on playing a very physical brand of football. They understand that offensively they are built strong up front. They have a strong running game. They have a quarterback that is multidimensional. They're going to play great defense, and they're definitely going to play great special teams. And then we're going to go ahead and we're going to like do other things off of that, and that's what our identity is going to be. And that's they stay true to that. Obviously, this year they're going to try and make themselves – be a little bit more multidimensional as far as really trying to open up, I believe, Lamar's capabilities in the passing game. Because if they can do that and he can handle that, that kind of responsibility, well, this is a team that is stacked. They're loaded now. And Kansas City knows that they're coming. And week three, that's going to be a hell of a showdown on Monday Night Football for us to go ahead and watch. For sure. It's a lucky little break for you. It's interesting. I I loved watching last year teams try to figure them out and having the Ravens produce an answer pretty much every single turn. You know, sometimes you have a quarterback who, when you want him to be uncomfortable, you try to force the issue a little bit. The Ravens averaged 7.6 yards per play last year against the Blitz, even though teams blitzed 32% of the time against them because they were trying to make Lamar uncomfortable. And that's yeah. what was the most impressive thing to me is that every single thing that something threw at them, last, a team threw at them last year, it felt like they knew how to respond. So when you're looking at how defenses around the league or how even you would try mm-hmm. to answer what they've done, answer what this offense is schematically. What sort of tweaks do you think you will, will see from defenses and then from the Ravens to try to stay a step ahead of those tweaks? Well, I think first and foremost, what you want to do is you want to kind of constrict the area that Lamar has to work with, meaning this. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that the edges are secure, both when he is running the ball and when he's not running the ball, and when he's dropping back the pass, meaning this, confine him to the pocket. 
as much as you possibly can. Do not let him get out on the perimeter and become that dual run pass threat that then you don't have the athletes necessarily to match up with. You just don't. So the, the more he can get on the edge and really threaten you in space, the more dangerous they become. So I think, I think force and contain rules on defense would be absolutely critical. Force against the run, contain against the pass. Force, do not let him get on the edge. Do not let Mark Ingram get on the edge. Do not let J.K. Dobbins get on the edge. Contain. When he is in the pocket and you see him wanting to break right in particular, since he's a right-handed thrower, make sure whoever that left defensive end or whoever is rushing off the left defensive side, look, I don't care what you do. Do not let him get outside of you and keep him in the pocket where we have more bodies and more chances to put hits on him. That's what you're going to have to do. Now, how is Baltimore going to have to counter that? Well, if teams really sell out to try and constrict him and keep him in the pocket, Lamar's going to have to do exactly what he has said he wants to do anyway and what he needed to do when he came out of Louisville. I'm going to have to prove to you, as the great Steve Young says on the, all the time on Monday Night Countdown, I'm going to have to prove to you that I can absolutely gut you and dice you up from the pocket purely with my arm. I don't have to rely on my legs because Steve used to talk about the fact that when he was younger, when he was down in Tampa before he got to San Francisco, that he always thought that, look, I always have my legs. I can always bail myself out. But it wasn't until he really <clears throat> embraced really improving himself as a passer in the pocket where he didn't have to use his legs that he took his game from a good level to Hall of Fame level. And that's what Lamar is going to have to do now. Now just show people, hey, look, I don't – I don't always have to be out on the edge and create and turn things into I'm a better athlete than you. I can beat you strictly because I am able to read you pre-snap, decipher you post-snap, put the ball where I need to put it all over the football field, between the numbers, outside the numbers, short, intermediate, deep. And as he – and look, I wouldn't bet against him being able to do that because this is a guy who's answered the challenge step after step after step. And if he can do that, I'm just telling you, this offense is going to be a problem. So I think that that's the next progression for him because that's what defense is going to try and do against him. So last year, they threw an NFL record 42% of their targets to tight ends. 36% of their throws went to the middle of the field. I believe that was the highest number in the league. That's right. why they want to attack you. There's, there's, no, I mean, there's no mystery about that. We know that sure. he's really good throwing the ball to that area. But I think mm -hmm. when you watch what happened in the Titans game, and I don't want to put too much emphasis on this. I think we do that too often. But yeah. they really tried to push the ball outside of the numbers. That was yes. their defensive game plan. So are yep. you at all surprised that they didn't really go out and get any proven depth at receiver, and it seems like they're going to be rolling with some progression from Marquise Brown, whatever DuVernay and Boykin can give them in years one and two. Are you surprised they didn't go out and get somebody that they know they can rely on from day one? Yeah, I guess on the surface, yeah, you would say, yeah, I mean, why aren't they considering some kind of veteran addition? Will they actually consider Antonio Brown after week eight this year? Do they really feel that they are good enough on the perimeter? I guess those questions are valid. I think they believe, though, that Marquise is going to be much better in year two now that he's put on mm -hmm. more weight. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's more experienced. Miles is a hell of an athlete. Devin, I mean, who's going to just get better? Devin Duvernay, while he is primarily, he was primarily a slot threat at Texas, who I got to see in person. He is a guy who was a multifaceted weapon. I think they feel as though they can coach those players along and they will up their game in conjunction with the fact that Lamar purely from a quarterbacking standpoint is going to get better throwing the ball outside the numbers. They'll call it more. He'll execute it better. And, and, that, and thus they will get the results that they want. And I think overall, you know, again, this is John Harbaugh, as you, as you talked about early on here, staying true to who they are. They also are going to be a football team that still is going to try to absolutely just bloody your nose 
with the two-headed attack of Mark Ingram and J.K. Dobbins also. So they're not going to be one of those teams that's going to throw the ball 40, 50 times a game. I don't think they're going to be in the, you know, I don't think they're going to fall outside of the top 10 as far as, as, far as rush percentage. They're not going to turn into Kansas City. They're going to stay who they are. They're going to stay who they are. But you're right. Teams will pack the middle of the field against them between the numbers until proven otherwise, until he proves he can answer the belt throwing the ball outside the numbers. And it's no shock that Mike Vrabel did that. Well, Mike Vrabel is a disciple of Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick's a guy who I played for. Bill Belichick defends the middle of the field first, inside out, and attacks you inside out. So that doesn't shock me at all. And interestingly enough, that's just how the Ravens try to defend against you and how they try to attack you. They're going to try and attack you right in the gut first and then spread it out outside. And again, I know this is like the third or fourth time I've said this, but if Lamar can answer that question about can you throw the ball 15, 20 yards on a five-step drop, timing, speed out, if you can hit that consistently, look out, NFL. Oh, they're unstoppable then. I mean, it's, yeah. it's over if that happens. It's interesting to me because beyond Marquise's own production, you know, he only played four and five snaps last year. And mm-hmm. if he can just be on the field a little bit more, I think it's going to be interesting to see what his speed can do for them just in terms of creating space. So beyond sure. his own targets, I just think he's such a great piece for getting the ball to Mark Andrews in bigger windows. So I, how that all plays together is interesting to me. You're talking about the running game. You know, obviously they were a monster last year. You know, number one in the league in rushing by far. They were the run heaviest team since 2011, since the 2011 Tebow Broncos. And that excludes... Yeah. Lamar Jackson scrambles. I mean, this is exactly who they want to be. And last year, the efficiency was crazy. Are we underrating, though, what losing Marshall Yanda and having a bunch of turnover on the interior of that line is going to do? Mascara has been hurt. For, he had a major knee injury last year. He's been slow to come back. It looks like DJ Fluker is going to start at right guard, but you know you have so many moving pieces. That's why I think the J.K. Dobbins pick is interesting because it almost allows you to have a back that can be good outside of his circumstances rather than yeah. somebody that's just a plug-and-play guy. So when you think about all the moving pieces with that running game, are you at all concerned about their ability to kind of be that efficiency monster they were last year? Well, you're, you're always concerned when you use a guy of Marshall's caliber – one, because of obviously his, his physicality and his level of play in terms of a pure, from a pure execution standpoint. I mean, he was a damn good offensive guard, right? And, and he goes up against some of the biggest, strongest, fastest, most versatile people in the NFL when you're talking about defensive tackles. So that's number one. The physical aspect of it is, is a concern. I mean, DJ Fluker from a physical aspect, if you've ever seen DJ Fluker, obviously. I have. <laughs> of a man, right? I it's mean, a so, big, big man. That's absolutely. But. I think the more, the more important thing when you're talking about the interior of, off, of the offensive line is the communication sure. and how they really set the table, obviously, inside out from center guard out to tackle and making sure everyone knows what you're supposed to be doing. Because if you're not secure as far as assignment football is concerned at center and guard, then everything just breaks down from there. And things happen so fast in there. And considering how that's where they want to really run, they want to really attack you there first and then start working their way out to the perimeter. Yeah, you have to make sure that they, that you're solid, solid, and you're functional in there from an assignment standpoint first. So you want to, you're you're hoping that everything goes well from a teaching standpoint, an execution standpoint, an assignment standpoint in there first. Because if it starts to break down in there, then it's just going to trickle down to everything else that they're trying to do offensively, and you don't want that to happen. Look, J.K. J.K. was a workhorse at Ohio State. If, it's interesting because I mean I remember watching them last year and thinking 
you know, there were times I'm sitting there going, okay, look, Ryan, meaning Ryan Day, you got to give J.K. a break here. I mean, he would just run him until his tongue was hanging out. So he's a guy who understands, you know, what it's like to be in a run-centric offense and carry a heavy load, although he's going to share the load here with Mark Ingram. But, again, I, I think that's who they're going to still try to be. I think that John's going to rely on the fact that they're going to teach it the way they need to teach it to the new guys on the inside, and they'll get capable performance so they don't have to get away from who they are. And I, I just wouldn't bet against the fact that next man, the next man up philosophy, all things being equal, and that meaning that people don't get hurt and they don't start losing players, is going to be how they approach this. And they're not going to change their approach philosophically. It's just going to be, to me, this is the year for Lamar to take his game to the next level in conjunction with those perimeter players. They're not going to, they're going to be who they're going to be. It's just going to be like adding some upgrades onto an already pretty nice looking sports car. And <laughs> we're going to see how it all turns out. I think that one of the biggest things with this team is usually when you have a team kind of catch fire the way the Ravens did last year, and you're the it team in the NFL for most of the year, you lose coaches. I mean, there, there's brain drain because people want to copy what you've done. One of the biggest things for me with this team is that they get Greg Roman and Wake Martindale back. You, there's so much continuity in the staff is important. And the defensive side, I think there's you know really no argument as to why they won't be very good. They were excellent last year. You know, Again, they know what they are in terms of their identity, bringing pressure, playing from back to front. My question for you, Patrick Queen coming in and you know being – highly drafted guy, somebody they're going to rely on. We've seen rookie linebackers kind of be slow to develop. It's a position yeah. where few guys really hit the ground running, and that's interesting to me. And mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, guys seem to struggle in zone coverage a little bit. There's a lot of things going around them as, as mm -hmm. they sit in the middle of a defense. What do you think it is with that position and it, why it takes guys maybe a year or two to really find their footing at that spot? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have a, you know, it's something I'm kind of intimately familiar with only because, you know, as a, as a safety in the NFL and as being a bigger safety, a lot of the stuff that I did involved playing down in the run front as mm -hmm. a strong safety and then also playing, you know, in Bill Belichick vernacular and Nick Saban vernacular involved playing the money linebacker position, which is basically playing like Will, Will linebacker in in their sub packages and your nickel and dime packages and i can tell you that the number one thing that young players struggle with is at linebackers the fact that you're constantly in conflict meaning you're charged with defending the run first and you're trying to get really fast run keys so you can play downhill and teams don't gut you against the run but at the same time the game has become more spread out both laterally and hard and uh, and vertically that you then have pass responsibilities against tight ends like Rob Gronkowski, like, you know, guys like Travis Kelsey, guys like George Kittle, who if you don't, if you aren't able to then decipher run pass very quickly, they're 10, 15 yards down the middle of the field, and it's a quick, you know, pitch and catch for the quarterback. And next thing you know, you've just given up a 20, 25-yard gain because you were trying to defend the run. You didn't get enough depth against the pass. There's so many different things that you have to contend with that it causes guys to kind of have paralysis by analysis. And then they're kind of caught in no man's land over and over and over and over. But Bill, again, Bill Belichick will, has been on record as saying this. It's without a doubt the hardest position in football outside of playing quarterback is playing inside linebacker. And that's why you see typically on his football teams, he, he always would, he would kind of like lean to the side of having veteran linebackers, especially in the interior, and having younger guys play on the exterior, maybe who were past rushers, 
who didn't have the same kind of responsibilities that inside linebackers do. So for a guy like Patrick Queen, there's a lot that's going to be put on. But, I mean, young, young linebackers have shown that, that they've been up to the task. I mean, we've had young linebackers come into this league and just rip it up in, say, the past 10 years. But think of guys like Patrick Willis, guys like Luke Keekley, and these guys came in and they hit the ground running. Absolutely. And they were, they were after it. So I think Patrick will be able to – I think he'll be just fine because John's a great teacher. Wink Martindale's a great teacher. They have a tremendous front four, front set, you know, front five. They have tremendous rotation up there. So I think he's, I mean, he's going to have his growing pains. Teams are going to go after him for sure, especially with the way teams attack with tight ends now. But they're counting on him. That's a big piece for them. He, he, he brings a lot of speed, a lot of playmaking ability to that team on the second level that they haven't had. So He's a great blitzer too, which I think is going to be big for them. You know, just being able to send extra heat. They love doing that. I love the front seven. It just, again, it seems like they have so many more answers now with Mm -hmm. with Glass Campbell being able to do stuff for them. And that's been one of my favorite things about this team. I think on defense more than offense this off season is that they are just so not complacent. They know that they need to keep tweaking and keep getting better in order to keep pace in the AFC. And it's just why I'm, I'm really impressed with the approach they've taken. I think it would have been easy to sit there last year and say, we have a really good team. Let's just stick with the status quo, whatever. But going out and getting a guy like Calais Campbell and being aggressive and doing it, I just think it speaks to the vision they have for what they want this team to be. Well, I think what will do that for you, too, what will keep you from resting on your laurels and getting complacent is when you have performances like you had in the divisional round against the Titans where sure. they hit you up over the top. They got a lead on you and then they just ran Derrick Henry down your throat. So it wasn't, I mean, they're, they're a good football team. Look on paper. They're fantastic. They were a good football team last year, but at the same time, look, you, you know, this, you have to play very well week to week. You have to have as much fortification in terms of depth that you can possibly get because on any given day, but there, there are offenses that are very multidimensional in the NFL that can hit you in so many different ways. And you can never think that you have the answers you haven't figured out. And, you know, Tennessee exposed them a little bit in that way. And I think, hey, whereas they thought they were strong already on defense, they were like, Look, we need more heat up front. We need bigger people up front. We need more bodies we can rotate through there. And we definitely need speed and playmaking ability at linebacker. And Pat Queen will give that to him for sure. Let's get to another team that has a pretty loaded defense, and that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, you look at this team, I feel like they have one of the widest range of possible outcomes for any team in the league this year. You know, there are so many iterations of this season for them where they're a true contender, one of the best teams in football if things break right. But I also think there are some questions about how good the defense can be after last year and how what we can expect from Roethlisberger. You know, the biggest improvement a team can make in a single season is going from truly awful quarterback play to very good quarterback play. And that's, what's going to happen. So what yeah. do you think after the injury last year, what do you think is a reasonable expectation for a guy who is pretty cruising toward 40 here and coming off of a pretty serious injury? I mean, without, you know, the bad thing about this off season is that no one has seen really, I mean, no one's seen Ben in game action. No one's seen Ben play in not even limited preseason snaps to really ascertain just where he is at physically from, you know, in his lower body to where he is at physically with that throwing arm, especially when stuff isn't scripted and he's having this react naturally. So I, I think my guess is as good as anyone else's as far as what do we think he's going to be and what's reasonable to expect. Although I will say this based on what 
you know, people have said and what he has said himself, that he's ready to go and he has no limitations. And if that's the case, then you ha- you would have to expect that this offense is going to be much more efficient, that he's going to be a guy who would probably be a top 10 passer in terms of passer rating, QBR, whatever advanced metric that you want to use, whether it be completion percentage above expectation, all, all those different things. You would have to expect that he'll be a top 10 quarterback. Because this team was eighth in passing DVOA two years ago in 2018 when he was healthy. I mean, it's not as if we're like five years removed from them being really good. Right. So, I mean, that's that's what you would expect, that he would be there because you would expect Deontay Johnson to be even better. Juju Smith-Schuster, hopefully he stays healthy. And you expect him to be be solid. You would hope that a guy like, you know, Eric Ebron, along with Vance McDonald, I mean, those guys are people that will give him the kind of threat in the middle, middle of the field that he needs. You know, one of these guys who I tell you what on offense that I'm excited to see with them, quite honestly, is I mean, not obviously, I mean, you need James Conner to stay healthy, but at running back, Anthony McFarland Jr. is someone who I'm very interested in seeing out of Maryland because of the different body type he gives them. So I, I think Pittsburgh's just going to be there. I, I, I think they're going to be there, provided that Ben is everything that everyone says that he looks like so far this year. And you're right, defensively, look, they're they're loaded. They're loaded yeah. up front. I mean, they just signed my guy Cam Hayward to a contract extension. <laughs> and, you know, and Stefan Tuitz, one of my favorite players, Devin Bush, two years ago in the draft, I thought was one of the best defensive players in the draft overall. You saw what Mike was able to do with Minka, which is just, I mean, they they loved Minka Fitzpatrick coming out in the draft. And it's, a, it's, it's just criminal what he wasn't able to get done in Miami compared to what he got done in Pittsburgh. So, and this is a team that expects to win. It's one of the pillar franchises in the NFL. Pittsburgh's going to be right there. They're going to be right in. I want to get to the defense, but for, uh, before we do that, because I'm excited to talk about it, but the offense, as I look at the skill position players, and because I always like thinking about how guys are going to complement one another, how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. And I think that Deontay is like, he's such a Steelers player in terms of receivers. Yeah. Ton of returnability, great after the catch, good with the ball in his hands. They just keep doing this, and it's amazing to me that they keep doing it. Kevin Colbert deserves a lot of credit. So, yeah. But when you think about him and Juju – Claypool has really good straight line speed. I think that he's been great in camp. As a group, I think they're pretty interesting. Like, I'm excited about watching them. And I just, that's not the first, one of the first teams that comes to mind when you think really interesting, kind of intriguing skill position sets. But I really think that all of these pieces, and I want to ask you about this too. Matt Campbell coming in to be the quarterback's coach. I think they're going to maybe do some cool stuff with motion. He has an interesting background. I don't know. Should I be as excited for this group as I seem to be right now? No doubt. I mean, obviously it all hinges on Ben's health and honestly it hinges on Juju's health as well. Yeah. But we saw two years ago, look, Juju was a tremendous, for three years, Juju was a tremendous number two. The responsibility of being number one obviously is much different, but I think he is up to it provided that he is healthy. Deontay Johnson, when he came out of Toledo, I thought was the best route runner in the draft two years ago. This is a guy who will absolutely turn you inside out. And you were right. Pittsburgh does as good a job of identifying wide receiver prospects in college and then develop them once they get to the NFL. They do as good a job of that as any team in the history of the league, period. They are great at it. Absolutely fantastic at it. Chase Claypool, all indications are that he looks fantastic. He's one of those people who, again, was unfairly typecast as the guy who was too big to play receiver, maybe not physical enough to play um, tight end. So he was kind of like a man without a position. It was really just a workout warrior. Well, that's BS. This kid can play, and his tape at Notre Dame, if you watch it, is, I think, oftentimes spectacular. I got to see him down at the Senior Bowl. I remember standing down there at practice and standing next to him as they were doing some 7-on-7 stuff, and I remember just looking up at him and thinking, 
oh my god look how big this <laughs> and so I you're mean, right I, I we didn't hate on Mike Evans for that. I don't know why we would hate on Chase Claypool for that. Sometimes right. guys can just play. It doesn't matter if they don't fit in the box you want them to. Exactly. But you, you know how that is. In offseason, of course. Board and they just want to say stuff because they need to like create content. So, I mean, it, <laughs> but he, he is – he is. I, you're, I think you're, you're on the right path as far as saying you are, you know, very optimistic and excited about what they could potentially put on the field offensively. As long as big number seven is healthy and these guys stay healthy – I'm telling Pittsburgh is going to be there too. I really like what they just did as far as bringing Josh Dobbs back as well to be a backup to Ben, because we know, you know, Duck you think that's enough? Cool. Cause I was concerned about how they didn't really address that spot. You think Dobbs I, secures them and protects them enough. If Ben gets I, hurt, I think it's good. Look, the, the, the ideal definition of a quarterback is a guy who can, you know, hold the fort down for three to four games yeah. in an ideal situation. And he could, you know, keep you 500 during the time or better when he was playing. I think Josh can do that. I really do. And I know he's happy to be back there. You know, getting that, I mean, right now, I mean, Jacksonville is just a wasteland. He needed to get out of there and get back to Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh is set up. They're one of those teams that the more you analyze them, the more it's one of those teams that's kind of flying under the radar because nobody knows how Ben's going to actually be. But I think being optimistic about them is the right bet for sure. So the interest, the the defense, I think, is, you know, obviously the talent is undeniable, but you know, they got – just metrics that don't typically tend to stay sticky from year to year. They led the NFL creating 38 turnovers. And that's sure. something that's probably going to come back to earth a little bit. But I think yep. that there are elements, even if you expect some regression, that they could be better. You know, obviously Devin Bush was good last year, but he, like we were talking about, a little lost in zone coverage at times. I think he'll be just more secure and comfortable in year two. Getting yep. Stefan to it back, I think, kind of makes up for losing Jafon Hargrave to it as a super underrated player who was playing mm-hmm. excellent. They also had the highest pressure rate in the NFL last year, the mm-hmm. highest adjusted sack rate in the league. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's a fluke. You know, they do such a good job. I sure. think that it's similar to what Wade Phillips used to do in Denver, where they send five at the highest rate in the league in order yep. to create one-on-one matchups for everyone, which is an approach that I love. I wanted sure. to ask you about Minka. It just in terms of where he stacks up to kind of the best middle of the field defensive players in the league right now, where do you think he kind of sits in that hierarchy? Because I was watching him a little bit this morning. He was getting a spot so fast last year and recognizing stuff, but he was almost yep. getting there too fast. That the guy is just really locked in. It's really cool to watch. Yeah, he's he's he was taught obviously the right way. Nick Saban's one of the best DB teachers in the history of the game. Okay, having been coached by the man, I understand. He gives you the answers to the test. It's just whether or not you fill in the blanks properly when you actually get the test. So Mink is going to be ahead of the game as far as his keen, the keen diagnosed part of his game is concerned. And Mike is one of the best DB teachers in the NFL as well, given that that's what his background is from his time in Tampa Bay. So he's getting top-level, PhD-level education as far as how to play the game from the neck up. And then he always has had the skills. He showed that at Alabama. So he And he's a guy who has seen it from many, many different aspects, whether it be deep middle of the field safety, uh, split safety coverage, playing the money linebacker position, playing the star position in sub, meaning being the, the actual nickel defender. So he's seen it from the second level. He's seen it from the third level. He can play man coverage. He can play in zone coverage. He can do all of it. So I think as far when you when you have a guy who's that versatile, then you have to put him in the same – conversation as the most versatile players in the NFL, which right now when you're talking about safeties, you're looking at guys like Tyron Matthew, Buda Baker, those, exactly. those kind of players who are both second and third level defenders. And Minka's bigger than both of them and faster than both of them. 
and he's got a pass rush to go along with it, that is just going to make things easier for him because you're right. Although, you know, pressure and disruption is really what matters in the NFL, even more so than sex. And it's something that bears itself out. So he's going to benefit from, from TJ and Cam's work and Bud Dupree's work up front. So it's, it's a perfect mix for him. So he, he's easily in that top, in that conversation of being one of the top five safeties in the NFL and a guy who was going to get paid handsomely when his time comes. The other thing I wanted to ask you before we get out of here, I think it's interesting, you know, somebody who has thought a lot about building teams, which you have, you know, you look at teams that have spent a lot on defense and built defense first over the last five years, whether you think about Jacksonville, Chicago, the, the success with building with that model is kind of fleeting because defense is just not as sticky from year to year as offense is. If sure. you were and, and you look at the Steelers, they're third in defensive spending this year behind the Broncos. And I can't remember who's number two. It's a bad job by me, but they're mm-hmm. third. And if you were building a team from scratch, if you were starting over, which I know you, nobody ever would, but just as a thought sure. experiment. How yeah. would you consider the way you'd want to spend on defense compared to, let's say, what the Chiefs have done, where it's mostly we're going to put our resources on offense for the most part and skimp because we think it's just safer? How would you kind of try to balance out what you'd want to spend and how many resources you'd want to kind of devote to the defensive side of the ball? Well, I think, you know, you know just kind of going back to what we just talked about as far as how important pressure is from a defensive perspective, I think those guys you definitely have to invest in. I mean, when you look at the Chiefs, they paid Frank Clark. They just paid Chris yeah. Jones. They paid and went out and they went out and specifically targeted Tyron Matthews. So those are the areas where I would definitely make sure that I had premium players at. One on the edge, one on the interior, one in the back end that is a multi-positional player, the hybrid type player that can play safety nickel dime and maybe an, an emergency place in corner and you obviously want to have as good of corners as you can possibly get although with the chiefs they don't have elite corners on the d- offensive side there's no doubt that you, you have to take care of quarterback you have to have guys who can strike on the perimeter guys who can produce plus 20 yard plays we know it's a big play type league we know you can't just grind it out and constantly be sitting in third and five and third and sixes all the time. What you want to do is you want to win on first and second down. You want to have early down success. How do you have early down success? Usually that means throwing the football. Usually that means throwing the football early in games. So you need people who are aggressive go-getters on the offensive side of the ball. So I think that's how I would really look at constructed. So in that vein, you obviously you want to have a quarterback. You want to have pass rushers. You want to have corners. You want to be able and you want to have wide receivers. Now, obviously, you need big men, too. You need to take care of your offensive line. But I think those five positions, quarterback, pass rusher, corner, wide receiver, and a stalwart on the offensive line, whether it be left tackle or right tackle, which really those, those positions are interchangeable now, top five, that's what I'm looking at. That's how, those, are, those are positions I'm trying to secure some way, somehow. That makes total sense. I think it's think it's interesting. I, I just become wary as somebody who has watched a lot of Bears football and rooted for the Bears, and then just seeing kind of the teardown that's happened in Jacksonville. It's like, man, I love good defense, and I love when teams build truly complete defenses like this. But it yeah. just feels like it's it, again the moment is kind of fleeting with those teams where it's like you got to strike now because yeah. it's just probably not going to well, be sustainable from year in to year out. The, the problem was in Jacksonville, Blake Bortles wasn't it. Yeah. The problem is in Chicago, Mitch isn't it. That's, That's my question, though. How long has Ben there? Let's say this is Ben's last year. 
And then now, like just hypothetically, and then you're kind of left with this team where you're like, oh shit, <laughs> we don't know who the quarterback is. Yeah, how I mean, can we get well, the most out of this defense? That's my question. I, I think, you know, I think whether Kevin stays there long term or he moves on, whoever is in charge of building that football team, there's no doubt in the 2021 draft, you have to be thinking, we got to have an heir apparent. You've got to be thinking maybe the same way Brian Gutekinds was thinking up in Green Bay. We have to have an answer because, Aaron, like in Green Bay, Aaron can't play forever. Just like Brett couldn't play for, forever when they drafted Aaron, and just like now when they drafted Jordan Love, they have to have an answer. And you're right; you have to start thinking ahead down the road. And in Pittsburgh, it's time for sure. It's interesting to me that just the idea of how much better quarterbacks make everybody else on the team, right? So it looks like Chukes Okafor is going to be the right tackle there. And with some teams, it's like, oh man, you know, you got a guy who hasn't played a lot. It's going to be thrust into roles as a starter. And then you look back at it, and I totally forgot that. Ben had the lowest sack rate in the NFL by a large margin in 2018 and the quickest time to throw. It's just having a quarterback that you can rely on in these ways makes everybody else better. And that's why I just think that it's hard to really overstate how much better this offense could be because he touches every single one of those 11 guys. No, no doubt. No doubt. Guys who, guys who, who can play faster from the neck up make everything else so much better on offense because you have, there's less time, especially when you're talking about the passing game, right? There's less time for everyone else to be exposed. So you could be an, have an offensive lineman up there who is an absolute freaking turnstile who people are just running right past him. But when you have a guy as big as Ben and as smart as Ben, who understands offense as well as Ben, I can help negate your deficiencies and therefore maybe feel as though make a GM feel as though, well, I have time. I have, I can buy time until I have to really address that position and I can pump money into these other positions because Ben's going to take care of this right tackle for me for a little while. So we can go out and get this receiver or get this other playmaker or, or address something else on some other part of the football team, simply because Ben can offset some of his limitations. Whereas obviously, as you saw a year ago, Mason Rudolph isn't offsetting anything. Yeah. There's not much offsetting happening there. That's right. So you know what? So you're right. The trickle down effect that those guys have. I mean, look, just look at it, look at it with the Kansas City Chiefs. Exactly. How many yeah. plays in that Super Bowl was Joey Bosa absolutely just wrecking Eric Fisher? And Pat Mahomes says, ah, you know what? I'll just slide up in this pocket here, right here, and launch a 45, 50 yard or sidearm with a flick of my wrist to Tyree Kill on third and 15. Ah, no biggie. I got it. Don't worry about it, Eric. I got it. I got you right here. I got you. That that's the cool thing about being Andy Reid and Brett Beach right now. Whenever you have a problem, you just kind of hold up 15's jersey and go, ah, he'll figure it out. He'll figure it's, it out. It's, it solves a lot of woes. Before no we doubt. get you out of here, I just – I really want to celebrate for like 10 seconds a guy <laughs> like Cam Hayward and a guy who plays like he plays getting that contract extension because I just love dudes who – their approach to football is I'm going to hurt the person across from me every single sure. play and ha and succeed that way. He is, if I had to pick a defensive lineman on the interior in the league, that would just be the least fun to play against for 60 minutes. I know Aaron Donald would terrify you, but just yeah. from a, I need to sit in the cold tub for the next six hours. I think yeah. Cam Hayward might be number one on that list. Well, having played with his father, when we were at Pitt together, his dad was the same way as a running back. <laughs> Most people sat in the cold tub after they played us when, when Big Ironhead was running the rock, too. So he got it, honestly. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, he is good people, too, now. This is a quality, quality, quality young man who deserves everything that he is getting good that is coming his way.
And as a GM, those are the kind of draft picks and then signings that when you put your head down at night and you start thinking about your legacy as a team builder and all, you go, look, I may have screwed a lot of stuff up. I nailed that one, both on the field and off the field. And that's what he is. He's just a top quality. Cam Haywards was just a top quality individual. And you couldn't be happier. Well, I, uh, we got to get you out of here. I, we're going to hit the other two teams with Shield a little bit later today. But I do, before you leave, I want to hear who you think is going to win the AFC North. Oh, boy. Look, I think Baltimore is going to win it. Yeah. I think Baltimore and, and Kansas City are still going to be the, the class of the AFC. But if, if any, but the, the one thing I will say is this, and having talked to enough people in the league this year, I can tell you this. Because of how the uncertain times that we're living in and how COVID could just absolutely wreak havoc on your football team, no matter how perfect you try to make things and far, as far as protocols and procedures in your organization, I think we have to be prepared and expect the unexpected. That has nothing to do with our football acumen, but simply because of this virus. And I think we, that's something that I think we have to prepare for and expect. Absolutely. Lewis, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for doing this. It really means a lot that you take it out. I know it's your, it's a hectic time for everybody. So thank you. It's all good, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Before we get to shield, let's take a quick break. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually men just brush it off or blame themselves saying things like, I lost my mojo, or they avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about erectile dysfunction. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com maze and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com maze, that's my last name, today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com maze, M-A-Y-S. GetRoman.com maze. All right. I am very pleased now to be joined by the Athletics' one and only, Shil Kapadia. Shil, how you doing, buddy? Good. You know, I was just trying to open up my document for this podcast, and by accident, I opened up our shared groceries COVID list in my house. So I, I shut that down, and now I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. What's on there? Anything fun? <laughs> no, nothing good. You know, some milk, some bread, you know, the, the usual stuff you don't want to forget. What, so what kind of stuff is in the house for the kids that you wish wasn't there? Like what kind of things that are you would not eat as an adult, but find yourself snacking on because it's always around? You know, it's all the the sweets when they order ice cream or my daughter loves donuts. Like I love all these things, but I try not to eat them, but I have zero willpower. So I'm the kind of guy who if it's like nine at night and I know there's ice cream in the freezer and I've been like, you don't need that. Uh, it's going down. It's, you know, I'm going to sneak that in there and eat it. So I, I, my wife has willpower. I say, don't keep it in the house. She's like, grow up, have some discipline. And so uh, that's how the Kapati household goes. I'm the exact same way. If it's here, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> yeah. A pint, a, bite, a pint of ice cream is one serving. Oh, I mean, that, that's not, that goes yeah. down in one sitting, no matter <laughs> if I want to or not, it's not really up to me. All right. She'll, we, we talked to Lewis about the Steelers and the Ravens, obviously two teams that probably atop this division. I think if you polled you know, a group of random hundred people, that's what they would say. But I also think that the two teams a little bit lower down in this division, the Bengals and the Browns, 
there's a lot to talk about here. I want to start with the Browns. You know, a team that came into last season with pretty high hopes. You know, at the ringer, we did a Browns week that I feel like we could <laughs> probably just burn with hellfire if it were up to us. Just so no one just destroy any evidence that it ever happened. But obviously a, a huge disappointment for them last season. I mean, Freddie Kitchens, the Freddie Kitchens era lasted one year. It did not go well. Baker Mayfield took a significant step back. So now we're kind of in a post type world with the Browns where can they pick up the pieces with this new version, whether it's Kevin Stefanski and the staff, Andrew Barry taking over the front office. We have another new regime in Cleveland. And the question is, why is this one going to be different? So I wanted to start by talking about how this team is in kind of a unique spot when it comes to having a new coach, because for the most part, all the teams we expected something from this year that have a new coach, mostly just Dallas, they have Kellen Moore coming back to kind of give some continuity to what was a very good offense. The Browns are one of those teams that has talent, but is starting completely over with a new staff. So are you concerned at all about their ability to kind of hit the ground running with a new offensive system that Kevin Stefanski is bringing in, considering this is going to be entirely new for everybody in that building? I think you have to be, especially talking about this offseason and looking at which teams are in the best shape and which aren't. You know, I think the Panthers are the only team uh, that's bringing in a new quarterback, OC, DC, and head coach. So the Browns, like you mentioned, are in a different spot where offensively the system is going to be revamped. I really am not even sure what we call that system that they were uh, that they were running last year, but certainly this one will be more defined. It doesn't deserve a name. Yeah, it's fine. We can just say whatever the the Freddie Kitchens approach. (laughs) There you go. And then and then defensively, there's so much. It's not just the scheme, but the roster turnover. I mean, they're returning fewer than 50% of their defensive snaps from a year ago. That ranks 30th in the NFL. So there are a lot of moving pieces. You know, I think we'll find out pretty quickly which of these new coaches is sort of up to the challenge of being able to implement their scheme, their culture, all these different things in this type of offseason. But uh, on the other hand, if you're Stefanski, you're going into a system where or a team where you have some talent there. So it's not like the cupboard is bare. I feel like the de- we'll get to the defense in a second here. I want to talk about the offense first because you know Kevin Stefanski, he's in such a unique spot just as a coach. You know, he spent about a decade and a half in Minnesota working for different regimes. So he came in with Brad Childress and he kind of stuck around. It's an odd path for a football coach. Usually you have a guy who's off a certain tree who abides by a certain schematic philosophy. That's never been the case with Kevin Stefanski. And he and I have talked about this several times over the last couple of years, just about the offense that he ran last year in Minnesota. And it was heavily influenced by Gary Kubiak, who was an analyst there, kind of in an advisory role last season. But Stefanski has told me that whenever he was going to be given a chance to be a coordinator, if it was ever going to happen, he would have wanted to run a system that looks like Gary Kubiak's. He always thought that the play-action marriage between the run and the pass, the boot game, everything else, put the most stress possible on a defense. So even with Kubiak gone, Stefanski now kind of running his own show, I expect some version of that offense. And in my opinion, it's the best offense in football. It gets the most out of your quarterback, and I think that's the most important thing when you're trying to build a system. So if you're looking at the step back that Baker Mayfield took last year and what we could hopefully expect from him this year, what elements of that play-action-heavy offense do you think meld well with what Baker Mayfield does well and has to do better? It's yeah, I mean it's uh, that's interesting because I was I've been wondering what system, what scheme he's going to run because like you mentioned, it is such a unique background where you've worked with a West Coast guy, you've worked with North Turner, you've worked uh, under this Kubiak play action scheme, and you weren't really sure. Uh, I think you were talking about this on the 
NFC North podcast, and you made a great point that we all, or at least I have been assuming that we're it's going to be very similar to what he did with the Vikings last year, but you were absolutely right that when you're working for a defensive-minded head coach, you you have some restraints there. You know, I certainly saw that in Seattle. You got to kind of do what the head coach wants you to do. So with Mayfield, you know, he moves well. You know, I the skill set it should be good with the with the boot action, with getting outside the pocket, uh, all those different types of things. Uh, the twelve personnel. You know, if you look at the numbers from last year, he was very good out of two tight end sets. And if you look at their personnel this year, you would figure that they are going to run a lot of twelve personnel with signing Austin Hooper, David Njoku, uh, and then Harrison Bryant, the tight end that they drafted. So. All those elements, like, they make sense to me. You know, I don't look at it man, that, man, Stefanski's going to have to force this scheme into a quarterback who does not fit the skill set and, and have the traits that you would want to run this scheme. It, it makes sense to me that Mayfield would be able to thrive and have success under this type of scheme. I wrote about this. It was the last thing I wrote for The Ringer was about Gary Kubiak's kind of influence on the league. And I talked to Stefanski for the story, and I wrote in there that, it, yeah, the basis of the offense was going to look like it did last year in Minnesota and similar to what Gary Kubiak has done in all his stops. And apparently that was news to people in Cleveland. Like He hadn't talked about it, really. And I just kind of, even if he hasn't been explicit about it, take the clues. Take the clues that you see from the changes they've made this offseason. Going to get Austin Hooper, who's played in a similar offense to that from the Kyle Shanahan influence in Atlanta. Going to get Andy Janovich from Denver, who played in that Rich Scangarello offense last year that was influenced by Shanahan. I just feel like they're going to be in heavier personnel sets. They're going to run that offense just by virtue of the moves that they've made. You bring in Jack Conklin, who ran a similar system in Tennessee for the last couple of years to play right tackle. So that, that, to me, is just a given. When it comes to Baker Mayfield, Again, I think all quarterbacks are propped up by play action and this offense to a certain degree. But if you look at the specifics of Baker Mayfield's game and his numbers last year, I think you can make a case that he could benefit more from it than pretty much every other quarterback in the league. He had a 10.1 percentage point jump in completion percentage last year with play action compared to non-play action. That was the third highest mark in the entire league. Okay, He had a 2.6 yards per attempt jump with play action last year. That was eighth in the league. I also think that if you're going to really have some defined reads, some real kind of established choices by virtue of design in those play action schemes and some design rollouts and moving the pocket, you're almost not allowing him to do that thing where he drifts to his right and has that terrible habit of doing it because you're putting it into the design of the play to a certain degree. I just think it's going to create opportunities for him while putting constraints on him in the ways that you want to. So it's easy to say, well, more play action is good for quarterbacks, but I just think overall when you look at his success with play action and with RPOs last season and for the course of his career, I just feel like he's a perfect fit for what this offense likes to do. Yeah, there were really situations last year where they would go up and down the field and you would watch and think, why are they not doing this consistently where he would yes. just look comfortable in stretches? I would watch them and like I hung on. Uh, I was one of the people who got burned before the season. I thought they were going to be really Oh, trust good. me, man. So was I. I got <laughs> yeah. I got absolutely just throttled by how terrible they were. Yeah, so I was hanging on, you know, middle of the season. Well, maybe they can still make a run and you're watching them and you're seeing them string together these long drives and he looks comfortable. He's making quick decisions. And I think the key was really just the negative plays. And it, it sounds so stupid. It yeah. sounds like the worst bit of analysis you probably have had on this podcast. Cut out the negative plays. Yeah, great, great idea, <laughs> Shield, for quarterback play. But if you look at it, like I was looking at his numbers 
on completions last year, and they were very similar to his rookie season. So that tells you that, you know, it's not like he was dinking and dunking. It's not like they weren't getting the same yards after the catch, any of those things. When he was completing passes, basically the same things were happening. But interceptions and sacks just killed them. I mean, interceptions, if you looked at, I was looking at EPA on interceptions. Jameis Winston obviously was the worst. Baker Mayfield had the second worst in the I love how NFL. you just said that. Jameis Winston was obviously yeah, the mean, worst. Sorry, like, Jameis. That's, 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 that's a given. <laughs> um, but Mayfield was second. Uh, the sacks were obviously a huge problem. And I think you know, there's been different analytical studies that play action really can help your pass protection. And, you know, a guy, a guy like Kirk Cousins, if you look at all the, you know, how long did it take him to throw the football last year? Like he holds on to the ball, but when you're running those boot actions and you're standing out there on one side of the field and the scheme fooled the defense, you kind of have the ability to do that and make some plays downfield. So uh, I think what you're saying should help him cut down on a lot of those negative plays. And I think the structure is important. You know, he certainly can make plays outside of structure, but if you look at it last year, I think that kind of hurt him. You know, there are some of these younger quarterbacks. I think you saw it with Josh Allen too, where they sometimes get too caught up in that. And maybe they have one play where they improvise and play outside of structure and hold on to the ball and make a highlight play. But overall, the numbers were really bad with that with Baker Mayfield last year. So I think defining the reads that structure will help him it's almost like when you have a bad three-point shooter that hits one early in the game and yes. the other team celebrates because yeah. oh yeah I'm, I, now he's gonna think he should take him for the rest yeah. of the game I, I totally agree to me and pick up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I completely agree I think that the number one question about them personnel wise on that side of the ball is the offensive line just because of the moving pieces you know you can kind of drop Austin Hooper and he's gonna be what he is but they drafted a rookie left tackle in Jedrick Wills you have Jack Conk coming on the right side you know, it's there are moving pieces there. It's going to take a while for those guys to gel, and I think that J.C. Treader not not practicing because the knee scope he had earlier this summer is something to keep an eye on too. But I have faith, like you said, in the scheme to kind of manufacture pass protection. And Bill Callahan is the offensive line coach yes. there. I mean, there are worse guys to kind of try to figure this out with when you consider his track record over the course of his career. So I, I think it may be a little bit slow going for them. You know, this scheme in general, I think sometimes takes some time, but we've seen other instances where you know, Sean McVay was really good right away in LA. You, uh, I think that last year coming in with Kubiak and Stefanski in Minnesota, they were a top 10 passing offense kind of in their first year yeah. running that scheme from the start. But you know, other instances, Shanahan and Atlanta took a season to figure out. In San Francisco, it took a couple years. So I think there are arguments both ways, but I think that there are the pieces in place for them to be good. I also think one more note before we move on to the defense I thought was interesting. The Browns led the league last year in running back screens but they were actually middle of the road in efficiency on those plays. Mm. And the Vikings last year led the NFL in yards on running back screens. They were extremely efficient on screen passes. And Stefanski had a huge role in designing that element of the offense. So I'm really curious what that'll look like with Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb because both of those guys I feel like would be great with the ball in the hands. With the ball in their hands, Kareem Hunt is an amazing receiver. I really think they have the pieces in place here to make this offense really dynamic from the start. They're, they're definitely talented. I mean, you can certainly make the case that there shouldn't be many excuses for Mayfield this year, even the offensive line. Like you mentioned, with Bill Callahan, it's not like he's going in there with a bunch of guys who can't play. I mean, they signed Conklin, they draft Wills, they have some good guys uh, on the interior. So I think there's enough talent there for them to be mediocre to above average. And the screen game 
is a, is a great point. I mean, Dalvin Cook was outstanding on those last year. I think Kirk Cousins had 450 yards or something like that on screen passes. I mean, those are, you know, if you can get the execution of those down, man, what a weapon that can be uh, for your offense. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think they'll be fun to watch this year. Interesting kind of note that the other members of the office staff, they brought in Chad O'Shea to be their pass game coordinator. He was in Miami last year as the offense coordinator and spent a long time in New England. And one of the reasons that they were interested in that is because he was so good at devising, or the New England is so good in the red zone. So their red zone concepts. It's interesting watching these offenses become an amalgamation yeah. of these different sort of stops and everything else. So I think that you're going to see a cool combination of stuff there with the Browns. One other kind of coaching note, uh, which I think is interesting to kind of consider. I feel like what happens at the end of seasons has an outsized impact on some of the thought processes that teams kind of follow in the offseason. So the 49ers last year just destroy the Vikings in the playoffs to dismantle them. And I don't think it's an accident that the guy who was the pass game coordinator on that defense for San Francisco, Joe Woods, is now the Browns defensive coordinator. I think that a lot of times those moments stick with coaches in ways that they might not be like in their best interest. It's like a little bit looms a little bit too large at the, what happens at the end of the year for these guys. Uh, we see that everywhere in the NFL, these biases of yes. coaches. Like I remember during the Chip Kelly era, Byron Maxwell had this incredible game against the Eagles. <laughs> and I was like, all right, the Eagles are signing Byron Maxwell after the season. Like, you know, you could just see the hearts in Chip Kelly's eyes when he talked about the guy. And you see that uh, all the time with coaches, whether it's players or other coaches. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. On defense, I think they're going to be okay. You know, the main question mark for me is definitely at linebacker. You know, they have a lot of turnover there. Mac Wilson, who I think they expected to play their 2019 fifth-round pick, is hurt. So he's going to take a while to get on the field. They drafted Jacob Phillips in the third round. A lot of moving pieces in the middle of their defense. A lot of turnover on the back end. But I do think they have the guys in place to have that be a pretty decent secondary. I believe in Joe Woods. I think he's a really good secondary coach. You bring in Carl Joseph. They trade for Ronnie Harrison last week, who I think it, it trying to pick off players that are pretty decent from rebuilding teams is a very good move when you're yes. trying to find value i think he could be good for them after losing grant delpit the pass rush i feel like would be very good miles garrett in my opinion is a defensive player of the year candidate again i have faith that this group can figure it out i would be surprised if they were much worse than league average on defense and with the ceiling their offense has with that scheme i think they could be really interesting with Garrett last year, and I totally agree that he's a defensive player of the year candidate. If you look at their splits, like weeks one through 11 with him, you know, they were like a mediocre between 10 and 15 ranked uh, defense and specifically pass defense. And then it just fell apart after he got suspended. Like they were one of the worst defenses in the league over the last four or five weeks last season. So just getting him back healthy off suspension, that is definitely going to make a huge difference for them. And I'm curious to see what Joe Woods is going to do. You know, was a coordinator in Denver, did a good job there. Then he goes to San Francisco. And uh, I think typically we think of San Francisco of their run, they're running that cover three uh, Seattle scheme. But really, if you look at it last year, they did a lot of adjusting and were playing a lot more quarters in cover four. And so uh, it was still a lot of zone coverage, but it certainly was not as predictable as you might think uh, with some of the coaches out of that Seattle tree. So in some ways, it's sort of similar to what we're saying with Stefanski on offense. Like Woods has worked in different places under different coordinators, and now he kind of has a chance here with another year of experience to shape this thing under his uh, under his vision. And I, I think there is some talent there. I, I think they're 
ceiling is probably a little bit limited. You know, they certainly lack some talent uh, in certain areas, but Miles Garrett's a great guy to build around up front. I think their corners, if healthy, uh, can be pretty good. And uh, we'll see what happens at linebacker and safety. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that Joe Woods did a great job of kind of mixing it up in San Francisco last year. I think his kind of creativity really helped them on defense being a little bit less predictable. The other guy they signed this offseason that's funny, they brought in Adrian Claiborne, who just is so unexciting because he's been so many places, but he's just good. He's a really good piece to have yeah. for defensive line depth. He's just a solid pass rusher. If he's not starting for you, if you're just relying on him as a rotational player, he's really useful. So I think overall they've done a really good job of plugging the holes they need to on defense and you know, we'll see what happens. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Now is the time to celebrate. Football is finally back, and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, has millions of reasons why you should be excited. To kick off the football season, DraftKings is giving new users a free shot at a $1 million top prize, with a total of $3 million up for grabs for this Thursday's football contest. Getting in on Thursday night's single game showdown is easy. All you have to do is download DraftKings using promo code MAYS. That's my last name, M-A-Y-S. Draft six players from the season opener. Stay under the salary cap and see how your team stacks up against the competition. So head to the app now to start making it rain. Plus, new users who sign up today on DraftKings using code MAYS will receive a free shot at a $1 million top prize with your first deposit. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching the game like having a shot at a million dollar payday. Download the DraftKings app now and use code MAZE. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize and $3 million in total prizes. Don't miss this extra special week one bonus. Enter code MAZE to get a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. That's code MAZE, my last name, only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. All right, let's get to a team that you know, I don't know how many games they're going to win this year, but I do know that there's something very interesting about them, and that is the Cincinnati Bengals. The conversations with them this this season, obviously, it starts and ends with Joe Burrow. And I just think that if you look at the traits he had at LSU, pocket mobility, awareness, being able to create things that weren't there, kind of succeed outside of the system, even if it was set up for him to be really good at LSU. I have so much faith in his ability to be really good from day one. I don't know how you feel about it. Absolutely. I mean, this is not a football hipster take. I cannot wait to watch the Cincinnati Bengals. Like if I'm, I know, my, I know, you know, red zone rankings or whatever you want to call it. Like I can't wait to watch Joe Burrow. I mean, how many times do you get a prospect where you can, I think legitimately and reasonably say without any hyperbole, like he could put together the best rookie season for a quarterback we've ever seen. I mean, yeah. I, I know there's, it's a high bar. There's Dak Prescott and RG three and Andrew Luck and Russell Wilson, but I mean, 60 touchdowns last year, and I don't know, like, I have a type uh, as a sort of quarterback viewer, but what you just mentioned with the pocket movement and mobility, like, that's the trait that I might love above all else. And when you look at that and accuracy, like, I just feel like that's going to translate. You know, he was going up against SEC defenses. I know he had a talented supporting cast, but when you just watch him move and his presence and his innate feel and then his accuracy at, uh, you know, every part of the field, I feel like all that stuff's going to translate. And then you see what, like, his teammates are saying about him in training camp. And, you know, we probably do this too much as media where you're sort of trying to read between the lines. But, man, I I was reading some quotes on The Athletic uh, from our reporters there with A.J. Green just being like, this guy's going to be 
a star in the league for the next 15 years. And, you know, that's after like three weeks of training camp. So that got it's me better even than more him excited. not saying it. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. that's the thing. It's like, it's, I don't know how much it means, but it's better than like, I don't know about this guy. Right. So yeah, I, I think it's a good sign. The, the, I think I completely agree with everything you said. I love the pocket mobility. I love the awareness. I think those things translate. And I think it's especially important when you consider the makeup of the rest of this Bengals offense. Because if you're kind of picking apart with the weaknesses of this team, it's still the offensive line. Getting Jonah Williams back healthy will be huge. They were an absolute disaster up front last year. And I think even bringing in Xavier Suofilo, who has been a reserve for a good chunk of his career, but is an NFL player yes. at guard, is a step in the right direction for them. Questions about the interior. Bobby Hart's still the right tackle for this team. But I think that Burrow is well-positioned to handle pressure well just when you consider how he moves around the pocket. Young guys that don't have awareness, if you drop them behind a bad offensive line, a la Baker Mayfield last year, I think you can be in a bad, bad way. I have faith that Burrow can figure it out. My one question, it's kind of a big gap between what his offense looked like in college and what his offense might look like this year is the amount of players they have out in routes. One of the reasons that LSU was so successful is that they were willing to lean on five-man protections. You know, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was a first-round pick for a reason. He was out in routes all the time as a pass catcher. That was their approach at LSU. It was an incredible way to stretch the field horizontally and vertically. The Bengals last year were in max protect, the third highest rate in the entire league. So if he's only got three guys out in routes and they're kind of relying on that play action game, even though their play action rate was lower than I thought it would be, but if they're having more max protect, if there's only going to be a couple guys out in routes, stylistically and just even mentally, that's a much different way of playing the game than he played it last year at LSU. So I have faith in his ability to kind of figure that out as he goes, but I think it's just an interesting thing to note. And it, and it goes to Zach Taylor. We don't really know enough about what he wants to do after yeah. last year, right? I mean, it's it hard was, to tell. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell because what you just said with definitely not getting the quarterback absolutely obliterated was his number one goal. <laughs> I mean, you you mentioned the max protect numbers. And then I, I was looking, Andy Dalton had a higher percentage of quick throws than any quarterback in yeah. the NFL. So it was like, all right, whoever's playing quarterback, let's at least give them some type of chance to survive back there behind the worst offensive line in the NFL. So now, you know, with Williams and Suofilo, like if they can be like the, I don't know, 20, 20th, 23rd best. That's offensive enough. Line, that's enough. That's I, enough. I think. And you know, if you're, if you're Zach Taylor and you're willing to adapt to what your quarterback does well, and Burrow comes in and says, I'm comfortable in these five man protections. Don't worry about it. The ball will come out. Let's implement some of these schemes that I did in college. I mean, that's what a good head coach should be doing. And so I think if you see some kind of combination between helping the quarterback the way he did last year, but also doing what he's comfortable with and then adding in his, his pocket movement. I mean, uh, I'm excited. You, you get AJ green back in the mix. I think Tyler Boyd's one of the more underrated receivers. So I think there's like, there's a decent amount to work with there where this team is going to, you know, sneak up on some people and put up some, uh, put up some points against some defenses. The, the offensive line thing, like you said, being 20th to 22nd and being functional is so important because if we think the Burrow is going to be good from the start, the skill position players in this team are pretty good. Yes. I mean, it's like a nice little group. If A.J. Green can stay healthy, Auden Tate had a really nice year last year with no quarterback play. He's in the mix for them again. Like you said, Tyler Boyd's a decent player. Apparently, Drew Sample, the tight end they drafted in the second round, has been much better in camp this season. He's kind of locked down. That, that starting tight end job, according to Paul Diener, who's our Bengals reporter at The Athletic. So I'm excited. I think it can actually be pretty good. I Every time I try to like pull myself back a little bit, I'll go back and watch more Burrow clips, and I'm like, you know what? Screw this. I'm just, let's all in. I'm excited about the Bengals. <laughs>
Yeah, I, th- I was the same way. I think it was before the draft that I'm watching like Justin Jefferson uh, tape to kind of form uh, an opinion of him. And I'm just watching these Burrow throws and I'm like, oh my goodness, like how many NFL quarterbacks can place the ball with this type of accuracy uh, like he can. And so uh, I'm excited about him. Like you mentioned, even Joe, you know, Joe Mixon, I thought last year yeah, was very underrated. Like, there were a lot of times watching him where it looked like he had no chance and he just made a guy miss or fought through contact. And so I think he's surrounded. If, if the offensive line can just not sort of torpedo their season, and I think they made, you know, a few moves that would make you a little bit more optimistic about them this year, then uh, I think they really have a chance. Yeah, the cupboard is not bare. He's He's got some people to work with. It's funny. We I just criticize coaches for – giving way too much credence to like one anecdotal thing when they make decisions. Part of my excitement about Zach Taylor (laughs) is that when I was talking to Gary Kubiak earlier this month for a story, he mentioned that he was really excited about Zach Taylor's career. So it kind of made me step back and be like, am I not giving Zach Taylor enough credit? Is he like better at this than I think he is? Cause Gary Kubiak loves him and he tends to know what he's talking about. So pretty much coming from every single direction. I think that offense is going to be fun to watch. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think a lot a lot of coaches, they speak, and you're like, this guy's full of BS. I've yes. never interviewed Gary Kubiak, but I feel like I would be like taken aback by his sort of wisdom and opinion. He's like a, a whisperer of all things, where if he said something like that unprompted, I, I would definitely go go and run with it and, and adopt it as my own opinion. Good, I, good. I thought I was on kind of shaky <laughs> ground there, but I'm glad. So I want to talk about the defense. I want to talk about it more from a philosophical standpoint to, to get things going here. Were you surprised at all that they were so aggressive in free agency on two levels? One, this is a team that, for the most part, is still rebuilding. You know, they were, they were the worst team in the NFL last year. Getting a new quarterback helps, but they had a lot of holes. And they decided to kind of jumpstart this thing with the amount of money they spent. And this is not a team that typically opens the checkbook. I mean, they like to develop guys in-house, which is a nice way of saying they're very cheap. And the amount they spent this offseason, I was kind of shocked by it. I, I was. I, I do a piece every year where I do like free agency predictions and I you know just go through the top 50 and pair players with teams. And, you know, as I'm looking at the at the team list, I always just skip the Bengals because I'm like, they're not going to be signed. <laughs> really, I'm like, they're not going to be signing any of these guys. And then all of a sudden, free agency hits and they're out there uh, signing all kinds of guys, rebuilding their secondary, signing DJ Reader. So I don't know what to attribute it to. You know, maybe they look at it and someone got in their ear and said, if you have a quarterback on a rookie contract who you think is going to be really good, you really have a chance here to build something. If you're ever going to spend, now's the time to spend and take a flyer on some of these free agents. So I don't know that they made the wisest moves, but I, I was I was taken aback with how aggressive and uh, they were in free agency. Losing Trey Wayne's hurts. You know, he's, he's going on IR yeah. to start the season, so there's some questions at, at corner. But overall, I mean, I think that Von Bell is a good player. I think that Mackenzie Alexander is a solid player. If they can have you know better cornerback play and better play in the secondary from the start, I think that'll be big for them. So, uh, Linebacker is their biggest area of turnover. It looks like Logan Wilson, the third-round rookie, and Jermaine Pratt, who was a rookie last year, are going to start. They brought in Josh Bynes from Baltimore. I-, I think the front four is a really nice group. You know, We'll see what happens with Carl Lawson health-wise. I really like him when he's on the field. His team brought in Mike Daniels. They've got enough guys up there to have a lot of pop in that pass rush, and that solves a lot of other woes. I was reading uh, this week that 
you know, guys like William Jackson and Jesse Bates last year said it took a little while for them to kind of get comfortable in the system that, that Lou Anarumo was running there. I think that it took about halfway into the year for them to really get a hold of it. So I think they're going to be much better from the start this year. And I think the same goes for some of the players on that offense being in year two of the system. So I'm not sure this is a playoff team, but I do know that I'm very interested in watching how much progress they make. Yeah, the numbers back up what you said. If you look at their, uh, I know it's always dangerous to do this, but if you look at the second half of their season. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, the defensive numbers were a lot better than they were in the first half of the season. So, you know, if you're if you're clinging to that, hey, they did improve. It took them a little bit a little bit to understand the scheme and play in it. There are some numbers to back that up. And then DJ Reader up front, I feel like he's the player that offensive coordinators love to talk about the most, like on their, uh, you know, Wednesday yeah. press conference when he's on the opposing team dj reader doesn't get enough credit this guy dj reader will wreck your run game so i it just feels like he was very highly thought of by opposing offensive coordinators around the nfl and they were terrible against the run last year so yeah you got reader uh if geno atkins can be okay he's not the player he used to be dunlap and hubbard uh on the edge and uh we'll see what Anarumo wants to do in terms of his scheme it wasn't really like a very defined heavy man or heavy zone or heavy blitzing or rushing for like they did a lot of different things uh, obviously some of that had to have had to do with their personnel but I think we'll get a better sense this year of maybe what exactly he wants to do I totally agree with you. I was looking at some of the numbers yesterday as I was preparing for this. And I was like, yeah, not a really, not a lot of defining characteristics <laughs> yeah. of this team. It seems like they're trying to see what works right now, which when you have a young team and you're in the early stages of figuring out who you want to be defensively, that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. I feel like you look at some teams that were terrible last year playing only one way, like Miami or Detroit. I'd rather have an offensive or defensive coordinator without good players trying to see what they do best rather than saying, this is what I do. I don't care how bad we are at it to totally agree and i i was looking at it you know and first i was looking at like their blitz numbers and i'm like oh they were terrible when they blitz you know why they and then i'm like oh wait they were terrible when they didn't blitz so it's like <laughs> you know it's like he was just trying stuff if your personnel stinks yeah try stuff see what happens maybe you surprise uh, a team or two he's he's definitely got to be on the short list of most obscure coordinators uh in the league but we, we will see what he does now that the Bengals I guess have a little bit more of a spotlight on him yeah he came from the Giants he was their defensive backs coach but he had taken a couple years oh no he was it was with the Dolphins before that so he was with the Dolphins for for six years and then came to the, it was the Giants defensive backs coach and then got hired here so okay. you know it's not somebody whose name I heard thrown around a lot but he's right. been around yeah, for first time uh, defensive coordinator making the rounds. It was uh, I remember it was just sort of a weird time for Zach Taylor to be filling out that staff last year, and you weren't sure who they were going to get at defensive coordinator. But uh, see what it, see what he does with some players this year at least. I know their safety play I feel like was terrible last year. They were terrible against deep passes, so uh, they've got some more people to work with at least. It really speaks to just the overall vibe we're trying to curate with this podcast. The fact that we just excitedly talked about the Bengals for a good 15 minutes. And <laughs> I'm excited. Listen, man, I, I, I love that we're on the same wavelength when it comes to stuff like that. Sheil, thank you so much for doing this, buddy. You, you came out after Lewis Riddick and, and absolutely no drop off whatsoever. It's like a really good 3-4 hitter, and I appreciate having that in the lineup. You know, you go, you go bald guests back to back. You're going to get a good, uh, good, good podcast. So uh, thanks again for having me. Of course, buddy. So before we get out of here, who are you picking to win the AFC North? We already did that with Lewis earlier today. Uh, I've got the Ravens. I've actually uh, got the Ravens as my Super Bowl champ this year. So uh, wow, I've, I've all right. The, 
I've got Ravens, Steelers, uh, Browns, Bengals in that order. Uh, Ravens and Steelers in the playoffs. I am uh, very glad that I do not have to pick a Super Bowl champion yet because I am not ready there, both in terms of my preparation and emotionally. So, But we will get there before the season kicks off, which is a staggering two days away. Until then, guys, thank you so much for listening to The Athletic Football Show. Please rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. We would really appreciate that. We will be back tomorrow with Stephen Holder doing the AFC South. Appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.